You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, good morning. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can purchase one of these handy-dandy scripture journals back at the coffee bar for just five bucks. It's the entire book of Acts and a tiny little pamphlet. On one side, you're going to have the verses. On the other, you have room to take notes, maybe on a Sunday morning. Um, You can grab one of those. So let's go ahead and dig in. We're in Acts chapter 2 as we begin kind of like week two of our series in Acts um, as we go through this. So In Acts chapter 2, we have the disciples gathered together 50 days after the death death of Jesus, 53 days, I guess, after the resurrection of Jesus. Because they're at the festival of Pentecost, which is, is, is a word that means 50. It comes from being 50 days after Passover. Now, if we look at the disciples at the end of Acts chapter 2, we've got Peter who has stood up and, and preached this huge sermon with like deep wisdom. We have the disciples, these blue collar like fishermen that are walking around in the crowd and they're speaking other languages that they didn't know when they woke up that morning. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. But if we just looked 50 days ago at the end of the book of John, it tells us that they had locked themselves up in this upper room for fear of the Jews. Afraid that they were going to be killed just like Jesus was killed. But now, 50 days later, here they are preaching incredible sermons. And it says that 3,000 people were saved that day and then baptized. What happened? What happens in the lives of these guys so that this kind of thing can take place? And the reason I want to ask that question is not just to figure out that mystery in them, but to figure out how do I get something like that, right? And if you were with us last week, you probably got one of, these, uh, one of these cards, right? And we looked at that thesis of the book of Acts, that Jesus, before he zaps into heaven, he tells his disciples, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, which is kind of the surrounding areas there, and then even further out to the ends of the world, I want you to share about me. And so we challenge you to find out, well, what is your Jerusalem? Where's the place right here, right now, that you can share about Jesus? What's your Judea and Samaria? A little bit further out in your life, how can you share about Jesus? What is your to the ends of the earth? How can you share Jesus globally? And we look at that, and that's great. Sunday, we might be hopped up filling that out, but then Monday comes, and we're looking at that person at, like, across the break room from us that we wrote their name down, and we're like, I can't even talk to them. Like, God, I'm too shy, I'm too embarrassed, I don't want to do that globally. Like, how am I supposed to do something globally if I can't even walk across the break room and share about Jesus with somebody? So how did these plain disciples, these blue-collar dudes, go from what they were hiding, afraid for their lives, to what they did at the end of the chapter two of Acts, of preaching to thousands of people? The answer to that question is fire. You ready for it? Fire. Maybe. There we go. Let me just say I'm a little nervous today because every once in a while you'll see like on YouTube, one of those like pastors that has like a funny illustration, something he thinks will go well and then it just goes terribly wrong and then they're like a YouTube sensation. Mine would be deadly this morning. So let's, we're going to just hope that doesn't happen. But the way the disciples go from what they were afraid for their lives to what they are and the end of Acts chapter 2 is fire. So open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to answer that question, how did they go from fear to profession? It's fire. How did they go from fear in private to profession in public? It was through fire. How can we do the same thing? How can I go from fear to professing Jesus Christ? It's fire. So right here, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Fire. I'm a big fan of fire. You guys who know me, you probably know this. Some people, when I was growing up, they'd call me a fire bug or a, a pyromaniac. I like to consider myself an unlicensed pyrotechnician, right? I enjoy fire. My life is filled with good stories, bad stories, with fire. I'll share a few of them this morning. When I first started at Discovery, we were still in the Y and we were building this building and we'd come out to the property and out on the hill across like from the, the river there that goes through, out on the hill was this big just pile of brush and wood and like there was all the things they'd cleared out of the field. Like there was a whole tree in this pile and then there was some like old fencing from like a cow thing, pasture they had and they piled up all that fencing and just threw it in this big pile. And I looked at that and I was like, so what's going to happen to that pile? And they're like, well, someday we're going to burn it. I was like, oh, really? And I started coming up with ways that we could burn this. One of my ideas was we were going to do a messy games night, and we were going to signal the beginning of the messy games night by lighting this burn pile on fire from a flaming arrow. This was my idea. We had worked it out. I talked with Mark Woods. I was like, Mark, you think you could hit that thing with a flaming arrow? And Mark is like, yeah, no problem, but for sure. And so we started working on that. And then the event came and there was a burn ban. They didn't let us have any fire in Bristol in that time. And it was like, yeah, but come on. They're like, no, we're trying to play nice with the neighbors. So then at the end of the summer, we just had a back to school bonfire and lit that big puppy on fire. And I remember that night thinking like, this is a lot of wood. It's been out here for a while. It might take a while for this fire to get started. And so I'm gonna go kind of early, like an hour ahead of time, get this thing started so that when the kids come, they don't look at this little like, piece of smoke and they're like, oh, cool, Elliot, like you don't even know sort of fire because that's what they would say to me. They say it every week. And so I lit this thing and I'm waiting, like thinking I'm gonna have to like fan the flame, like do that whole thing. I lit this thing and immediately it was just like, and like all, it was, I'm not kidding. It was three times my height, the flames from this thing. The people from the fire department, which we talked to, we cleared to it. We got a burn permit and everything. They, and they were like, we'll come out. We'll put it out at the end of the night. And then they came out and they're like, we're not going to put that out. It's too far, all this stuff. But they're like, we saw your smoke. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, from the Avoca Fire Department, we saw your, your smoke, which is like beyond the racetrack. Ridiculous, like this huge thing. What I learned that night is that fire is unpredictable. Fire is mysterious, right? We would even go around to pieces of it. Like there's this one section of the fire. Anybody who was there might remember this, where it just was weird colors. It was like green and blue. Like I don't know what was on fire, but it was mysterious. Fire is mysterious. Yet also you may know that if you have just a, a candle, if you keep a candle in your car for cold winter months, not like the cold like we have in Bristol, but like cold in places where they really have winters, like sub-zero temperatures, just one candle, should you be stranded in your car overnight, no gas, no heat, the flame of one candle can keep you warm for the night so that you can survive in sub-zero temperatures in your car overnight just with one flame. Fire can be life-saving. There's another event I had one time with a different church youth group. I was doing another camp out and I built this fire and I was going to do a little devotion for the kids and use the fire as like a, a devotion like illustration. And I just had put a bunch of wood on it before the kids like gathered in around the fire. And then as I'm talking to them, trying to read the Bible, give them this devotion and like bring them all to Jesus, this fire just starts blazing hotter and hotter and hotter. And the kids are sitting there and like at first they're just kind of like turned like sideways like this so that like it's like she, then eventually they're just like shading their faces from the fire and our shadows are all like around this place. Is that thing 
thing just raged and, and kids just found it like overwhelming. And finally I had to say, okay guys, they weren't hearing a thing. I said, I was like, let's all just move. Like who cares about the illustration I had planned? Let's just go over here where we can breathe again and like stop sweating because that fire had become insufferable. Fire is overwhelming. Fire is insufferable. And yet fire can also be comforting, right? If you've ever been camping, a cold, rainy night camping, man, you gather around a campfire and there's nothing better. It's comforting. Or if you, anybody knows, like if you have a, a fireplace on a cold winter's night, if there's a little snow outside and it's cold at night, there is nothing more, dare I say, romantic than a fire, right? Some of y'all nudging each other right now. And I don't mean one of those like gas burning fireplaces, like I want to smell the smoke, like I want to hear the crackle of the wood. I want it to shoot sparks out and, and melt holes in my carpet, right? Like that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of fire I like. But we see these attributes of fire. You could come up with more yourselves. Fire is destructive, right? If you went to Gatlinburg or saw pictures of it after the wildfires went through, we know that fire is destructive, yet life-saving. It's insufferable, yet it can be romantic. And all throughout the Bible, fire is used for God to reveal himself to humanity. If we go throughout the Old Testament, and that's some of what we're going to do this morning, you will see that fire is what God chooses to use to identify himself with, his presence to humanity. So let's look at some of these. If we go all the way back to Old Testament, the, the video talked about Abraham, that early, early uh, guy of faith, Abraham, Father Abraham. And God gives him this big dream, telling him this huge promise that he's got for Abraham and the whole world. And in this dream, God is represented to Abraham by a fire pot, whatever that is, and a flaming torch. There's nobody there holding them. They're just floating there in Abraham's dream. That's how God chooses to reveal himself to Abraham, through fire. Then later on, we see Moses is out in the desert tending sheep, and he comes across this bush that is on fire. And the bush is like consumed with flames, but the branches, the leaves aren't being burned up. And then God speaks to Moses from this fire, and he says, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground, because you're in the presence of God. Fire is mysterious. Fire is unpredictable. And we see both of those things in God, don't we? God is mysterious. God is unpredictable. And then if we fast forward a little bit in the book of Exodus, we see the Israelites fleeing out of Egypt. And how does God lead them? He leads them in a huge pillar of fire by night and a huge cloud by day. Again, we have fire. And that fire leading Israel through the desert was their life-saving guide. Fire is life-saving. God is life-saving, Right? So then Israel's going through the wilderness and they get to Mount Sinai, that big mountain where Moses is given the Ten Commandments, where God meets with Moses. And I want to read from you, uh, from Exodus 19 for you, parts of this. Verse 18 says this, it describes us, this, this picture. Try and get this picture in your brain. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. So God is saying, Moses, when these people see this mountain on fire and they realize that I'm there, some of them may want to run through to get to me, but if they do that, they will die. They will be destroyed. So pass the word on to the Israelites, like don't try and break through this fire. 
But Moses doesn't even have to pass this word on because we see in chapter 20, verse 18, it says, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and there was a sound of trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. So no longer just a trembling mountain, we've got trembling people. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Because if they broke through, it would just eviscerate them, right? Because fire is insufferable. To the definition of the word, it cannot be suffered. God is insufferable, right? God is overwhelming. And the Israelites, they couldn't approach that mountain because God was there. God in all of his purity, God in all of his power, God in all of his light, God in all of his holiness was present on that mountain. And so if the Israelites broke through in all of their darkness and all of their depravity and all of their sin, the two could not go together and it would have destroyed them. Which is the problem we see not just for Israel, but the problem for all of humanity. That the Old Testament tells us this whole story starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, they could no longer be in God's presence, so they had to leave the Garden of Eden. Now we see it again at this mountain. The Israelites can't be with God. They can't approach this mountain. So God just talks to Moses, brings Moses up to talk to him. And then on that mountain, God gives Israel all the the laws, all the standards that they're to begin to live by as a people, as a nation, so that God can be in their presence. And so, yeah, God gives them the Ten Commandments, but beyond that, God gives them other laws and regulations. He gives them the blueprints, the plans for the tabernacle, which was going to be this tent, this big mobile tent that God would physically dwell in. God's presence would be in this tent. And they'd build this Ark of the Covenant. If you remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Build this Ark of the Covenant. They put it, and also the Bible, hopefully, in the middle of this tent is the Ark, and that's where God's presence was supposed to be. And so all of this is designed so that God could be in their midst. And the priests that would work in this temple and perform the sacrifices in this temple to cleanse the sin of the nation of Israel, to make the nation of Israel clean so that God could be in their presence, these priests had to go through great like, ordeals to even be in this temple. They'd have to put on, like, do, do special, like, baths and washing before they went. They had to put on special robes and, and all of these things. And then they'd go into the temple or the tabernacle, which was set up like concentric circles with the Ark of the Covenant in the very middle one in what was called the most holy place. And only the high priest could go in the most holy place. Nobody else could go in there. And the high priest, when he'd go in, he'd have all that garbage. He even had these bells on the bottom of his robe that would ring as he went in. The reason being so that the people outside could hear if this high priest was still alive or not, because he's in the overwhelming presence of God the insufferable presence of God. And there he would minister the sacrifices so that God could be in the midst of this nation. And so we see these plans laid out for Israel so that God can overcome this problem of the separation between humans and God. But there's this one instance that I really like that, or maybe I shouldn't like it, but where the priests mess up on this sacrifice, right? We've got two sons of Aaron. We don't know anything about them other than this instance in Leviticus 10. I imagine that like, they're kind of the like, rascally sons of Aaron. Like, their names are probably Fred and George, and they're just all the time causing problems and going in. And, and also, I realized this morning, like, looking at this, they're probably the original pastor's kids. 
which I hate to go by that stereotype, but like they're always causing trouble. And I fear that for my own life. Like you guys have heard the thing like, oh, pastor's kids, like they're the worst behaved people in the whole church. Well, this is Aaron's kids, right? So Aaron's two boys, they go in and they offer unauthorized sacrifices to God. They didn't go through the right times. They didn't go through the right process to do it. And it says in Leviticus 10.2 that fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. And they're just gone. And then later on, it just says that Aaron, like, he just held his peace. It's almost like he's like, I knew my boys, like, one day this is going to happen to them. But right there, we see that fire is downright destructive. That God is downright destructive. And these people that got in God's presence, not going through the right process, it destroyed them. And so we have the tabernacle. The day the tabernacle is open, they have the big, like, ribbon cutting ceremony, right? And they have the big goofy scissors and they're dedicating this tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And it says that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all those in the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So all throughout their journeys, this fire would be above the tabernacle. Later on with Solomon in 2 Chronicles, Solomon, the king of Israel, David's son, they've built a brick and mortar tabernacle and they call it the temple. Same deal, concentric rooms in the middle, the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. And when they dedicate this temple, it says as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Again, we see fire is overwhelming. We see that God's presence is overwhelming. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see fire as a symbol for God. And what better symbol? Because God is mysterious. Because God is unpredictable. Because God is life-saving. Because God is insufferable. God is overwhelming. Because God destroys. And so this elaborate system was put in place so that the Israelites could be in God's presence. And this big curtain was strung up between God and the tabernacle and the temple and the rest of the people. And that kept them safe from God's awesome, destroying power of his holiness against our unholiness. But on the day that Jesus died, we read that that curtain was torn from top to bottom because of Jesus' death on the cross. And there on the cross, we see every attribute of God, don't we? We see the mystery of God in the cross. We see that the cross is unpredictable, but we see that the cross is life-saving. We see that the cross is overwhelming. It is insufferable. But the cross is also life-saving. The cross is also comforting. The cross is also, dare I say, romantic. It's every bit of what we've seen God to be demonstrated through fire, and it's on the cross. It's his wrath, that insufferable power poured out on his son, not on me and my sin, but on his son who took my sins upon him because I couldn't stand in the presence of God. So God poured that out on his son as the final and ultimate sacrifice to be our final and ultimate high priest. 
Because of the cross, there's now no separation between us and God. There's no curtain in that temple anymore because of the cross. Because of the cross, we can approach that mountain where God's presence is and we can stand in the fire because of the cross. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Get back there with me. It says, On that day they're gathered together when the day of Pentecost arrived. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting in. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Did you catch that? The symbol that God has used for all history to represent his presence is here upon his followers. And it does not destroy them. It does not evaporate them. It rests upon them. The presence of God is now with his people. It's not just that they can approach the mountain. The mountain comes to be in them. It's not just they can stand in the fire. The fire comes inside them. And when that happens, look at what happens. Right here it says, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that God is inside them, they have super, supernatural abilities. Abilities to speak in other languages that they didn't know the night before. And here they are proclaiming Jesus. I would put on top of that supernatural ability, Peter's ability to stand up and decipher the Old Testament scriptures to what had just happened 50 days ago. And to stand up in front of the very people that executed Jesus and proclaim it boldly. He's got fire now. The disciples have fire now. And they use that fire to tell more people how they can catch on fire. So just real quickly, let's look at some of Peter's sermon as we continue this story through. It says that Peter stands up and he starts quoting the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. And in verse 17, it says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And on your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men, where are you at, old men? They shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, on the slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Peter's saying, you're asking what's happening right now. Like some people in the crowd are like, these dudes are speaking weird languages. They've been drinking. Like they are drunk in the morning. Peter's like, dude, it's too early to be drunk. That's not what's happened. Let me tell you what has happened is that God's spirit, as foretold in the book of Joel, has now rested upon his people. Young and old are filled with the Spirit. Male and female are filled with the Spirit. Slave and free can be filled with the Spirit, and with, with it comes the Spirit's gifts. And then at the end of that section in verse 21, he says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, that is you and I today, not just the nation of Israel, not just Jewish people, not just the people that know the magic words and can go through the right washing ceremony, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That you and I, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, slave or free, all of us who call upon the name of the Lord, we can be saved and we can be filled with this fire. And so then the crowd, as they're hearing this, we get to hear a little bit of the, the, what their discussion is inside the crowd. And they start looking around at each other. And in verse 237, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Remember, we got people standing there that were at the crucifixion. People that probably demanded for Jesus to be executed. People that were in the trials 
to get Jesus executed. It says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now that's a good question, right? That's a good question if you see guys, just regular fishermen guys, start speaking another language. That's a good question when you hear of fire falling on people's heads. That's a good question to ask back in the first century. That's a good question to ask today as we read this passage. What are we to do? We're hearing about fire falling on the apostles. We're hearing about incredible things happen. What are we to do? And I think each person in this room should answer that question this morning, Christian or non-Christian. For the non-Christian, Peter gives us the answer in Acts 2.38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, you want to know what to do? I'll tell you what to do. You repent. You recognize, you admit that your life has some mess in it. That you've got some darkness, that you've got some mistakes, and that darkness is keeping you far from the presence of your creator. You admit that, and then you repent of that. And you give your life over to this Jesus, and then you'll get this fire. You'll be filled with this Holy Spirit. He says, repent and be baptized. And now we get a new symbol. I wish we had our baptistry up here. The symbol of baptism where you're dunked underwater and it's as if you've been buried, as if you've been buried like a dead man in a grave, but then you raise up again. saying, I left my old body, I left my sin behind, there's a new person before you. It's like you're being washed in the water of all that sin, of everything that kept you separated from God and you come up able to stand in the fire and be filled with the fire. What are we to do? If you don't know Jesus, admit that you've got a problem and that he is your only solution. And then come and be baptized. For those of us that are Christians and we read this and we say, wow, these guys were hiding for their lives and now they're proclaiming in this way. How do I get some of that fire? These guys are doing amazing things. They have supernatural powers, these gifts. I'd like some of those gifts. Let me point out the way that the the gift of speaking in tongues is, is talked about just in this chapter. We won't go any further than just this chapter this morning. But it is a gift that specifically helps the spread of the gospel. It's not a gift that's a good pat on their backs. It's a gift that helps them talk to people from over a dozen other regions in their area. Separated by over 3,000 miles apart, people hear about Jesus this day because of the gifts that God gave them. And so we read that and say, well, I don't know if I can even like do this card. I don't even like, I can fulfill that. Yes, you can if you have the fire. And so in the same way, what are we to do? I think the answer is the same for both the Christian and the non-Christian. This morning, our prayer should be this. God, give me fire. God, give me your fire that's going to forgive. Forgive my sin. God, let me stand in your presence. Let me have your fire. If you're not a Christian, God, give me fire for your word. God, give me the ability to to stand in front of other people and let this fire spread. What are we to do? We got to pray and ask for God's fire. And so this morning, we're going to turn to a time of communion. And in communion, we recognize what Jesus did those 50 days before Passover on the cross. The night before that, he he gathered at the Passover meal with his disciples. He took bread and he broke it. And he took a a glass of wine and, and he passed it around. And he said, this bread, this is my body. It's broken for you. And the next day we see his body be broken in the insufferable fire of God for our sin. And he said, this drink, it's my blood poured out for you. It's the blood that allows us to stand in the fire. The blood that allows us to receive the full presence of God inside us. And he passed it around to his disciples. He said, take this, eat 
and remember what I have done for you. And so this morning and every week at Discovery, this is what we do. We're going to pass around some bread and some juice. It'll be in a tray and you can dip the bread and the juice and then we invite you, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, to take that. And remember what Jesus did for us on the cross so that we could stand in the presence of our mighty God, so that we could have his fire inside us. But for some of you this morning, that may not be what you need. For some of you, you're looking around and you're saying, I know I can't stand in the presence of God. I know that fire is insufferable to me because I need Jesus in my life. If that is you this morning, I'd invite you to our back corner where the prayer and decision room is to talk to somebody about what it would mean to be a follower of Christ, to talk to somebody about what it means to repent, to talk to somebody about what baptism is, and let's start the ball rolling on that for you so that you can stand in the presence of your creator and not only stand with him, with his comforting and dare I say romantic love about you, but you can have that same comforting, life-saving, insufferable, destroying power of God, that fire inside you. If that's you this morning, if you don't have that fire and you need it, please talk to somebody. So we're gonna move to communion in this time and I'm just gonna pray our prayer for us because I need it, I think you need it, we all need this prayer. I'm gonna pray and ask God that he send fire to us. So pray with me. God, as we move to communion and we are reminded of what your son did for us on the cross so that we could be in your presence, God, I just ask for your fire. For Christian and non-Christian alike, God, I ask for your fire. I pray for the people here who can't stand with you today, God, because the sin in their lives that you would show them, God, the need for your comfort, the need for your life-saving fire in their life. And God, let us turn over our lives to you, recognize that we have a problem and you're our only solution. And for those of us, God, that do consider ourselves Christians, God, I pray again for your fire. Send your fire to us today, God, so that we can share about you where we are now. So we can share about you and our Judea and our Samaria, so that we can share about you to the ends of the earth. God, give us your fire. Give us your mysterious, unpredictable fire. Give us your life-saving fire. Give us your insufferable, overwhelming fire. God, give us your comforting, yet destroying fire. God, give us your romantic fire today. It's in your name we pray.